learning, even the hard stuff. I mean, if you really want to read about somebody who is very, very serious about problem solving, read a little book called Fermat's Last Theorem. A uh, book by Simon Singh, S-I-N-G-H. Fermat was a French mathematician in the 17th century, 18th century. And he had, you, know, you all know the um, Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> More or less, we know the Pythagorean theorem. <coughs> the sum of the squares of a right triangle is equal to the, the square of the hypotenuse. Okay? Very simple proposition. Fermat generalized that from the, the square to n, where n is any number bigger than 2. So like the cube or to the fourth power, the fifth power. So it would be a, a to the n plus b to the n equals c to the n. And your job, it's a little bit more difficult than uh, counting the basketballs or even seeing the gorilla. Your job is to prove that there are no whole integer solutions from n equals 3 up to n equals infinity. And he wrote in the margin of a book, I have found a marvelous proof that this margin is too small to contain. And then mathematicians for the next 300 years beat their heads against the wall trying to figure out what the solution to that problem is. It's just a squared plus b squared equals c squared where you take the square and you make it bigger than two. It was one of the most profound problems in mathematics. This book describes the work of Andrew Wireless, who uh, was a professor of mathematics and is a professor of mathematics in Cambridge University, who from the age of 10 got sucked into Fermat's last theorem. Not joking, from the age of 10. This was like his passion. And when he was a full professor at Cambridge University, in order to uh, do this, he had to actually pretend that he was working on other problems and then do this on the side. And it took him eight years and all sorts of mathematics that weren't invented in Fermat's time, and it reads like a, a, a detective novel, including he touches on the whole history of the Pythagorean theorem and the whole Pythagorean view of things, which was a kind of its own mystery club, and, and the fact of the matter, and also women in mathematics, some of whom had to pretend they were men in order to get their pub papers published. I mean, just an extraordinary book. And it, like, bring out something that maybe you were immunized against mathematics. This reads like Sherlock Holmes. And, and he solved it. He proved the theorem. After making a mistake, too, he made a mistake. It took another year. It was somewhat embarrassing, but then he got some help. So it wasn't all his doing. He actually brought some very heavy hitters in to, so he could bounce his ideas and proofs off of so it was communal, it was collective, it had to do with, you know, community. That not one mind can't hold it all. Sometimes you need other minds to bounce it back on. So I just want to, one, thank you for coming out this evening. Two, I hope that uh, in the course of uh, this time in my talk, uh, I have at least uh, touched some kind of chord in you that is resonant with why the hell you came to this talk in the first place? Uh, I would say that from my own perspective, I am not an, an expert in education, except that everything that we do in the hospital is adult education in the best sense of the word, if you will, and that I would, don't see any difference between working with adults in some way and working with children 
except for continually asking ourselves, well, who are we working with, and then trying to modulate things so that it makes it. The notion of an inner and an outer dimension to life, that if you make it entirely about inner is incorrect, entirely about outer is incorrect, subject is incorrect, object is incorrect, but the knowing, the being, the sensing, the touching, the awarenessing, and the uh, attending can make an absolute difference in exactly the domains that William James, Krishnamurti, G. Spencer Brown uh, were talking about. And that uh, in some sense, not only our own health and well-being, but the health and well-being of the body politic, which depends on the education of the young, for God's sakes, really uh, hangs on. And yet we give it, in some sense, the least credence, the least money, the least resources, uh, and, and suffer, I would say, suffer greatly from the, the, the pain of children who go by not being seen, whose feelings not being met, whose life issues are not being met, whose education is not consonant with their life issues, uh, and makes it very hard to learn, very hard to love, and very hard to be. And I would say that the challenge of, now you'll probably hear from people in this series who are a lot more aware of what's going on in the field of education than I am, who are very skilled at various elements of studying, researching education at various levels and so forth. Uh, And then there will be a conference a year from now on mindfulness and education. What I've attempted to do is in some way give you the thumbnail sketch of the big picture and why mindfulness isn't some kind of uh, sort of clever way of uh, introducing a sort of subversive Buddhism into, into education, <laughs> which is not, but expanding the domain of our understanding of what it means to be human and the mind-body connection and how it can be used to amplify and uh, bring to life uh, a love of learning across the lifespan. So thank you very much. Thank you again for joining us this evening. If you're willing, you were handed an evaluation form. And what's most important for us to know from that... Questions? Do you want to have Yeah. Okay. Uh, Do you want to pass the mic? Uh, no, we'll just take the questions. Uh, Do you want to have questions and answers for a while? I'm happy to stay okay. for it. So, yes, and anybody who wants to leave can just leave, okay? And thank you for coming. And I recognize that you're going to leave. Okay. <clears throat> so one thing is, the question is, uh, should we, do you think you can just project the questions and I will sort of repeat them <coughs> if they're not too long? Or do you want a microphone? Okay, why don't, whose hand was up there first? Yeah. I was wondering, um, one of the things, as you know, I teach Yes. Thanks for coming. And one of the things that we're trying to do is collect ideas nationwide of how people are already using mindfulness practices with with youth. And I'm wondering if there's a way, because obviously as people are here, they're interested 
Yes, I think we can set that up. And um, on the website now is the Garrison Institute report on um, contemplative practices in K through 12 education, and they took. Could you step back from that. Thank you. They'll hear better. Um, they took. They actually did a mapping report and surveyed across the country who's doing what. So that's a good general place to start. And there's a link from our site to that report. And we'd be happy to receive emails. And the conference actually will be talking about, the, in the morning, Saki Santorelli, the director of the Center for Mindfulness, will do the morning. And then in the afternoon, there will be panels that are going to be based on teaching to young children, to middle school children, and to high school children, and teaching to teachers. And there will be breakout sessions for those where it will be, there will be some presentational aspect to it, but also a conversational aspect and a sharing of practices and that type of thing. Yeah, and I might just say that there are an awful lot of things going on that I did not mention, including MBSR people who have developed programs to work in the public schools. And one group uh, uh, whose name is Kinder just sent me something from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where they got a contract from the Lancaster public school system in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to teach this within their school system. And they have a whole language for talking about it. And uh, uh, you can probably find it just by <coughs> typing in mindfulness in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or their name is Kinder, K-I-N-D-E-R. And that's just one of like a score of examples of people who are already finding their way into public and private schools doing these kinds of things. And we'll have a link to them in, in the next week or so, because I also got an email from them last week. What, what is the email you're referring to, your email? My email is dramy at foryourselfhealth. Okay, so that's what I thought you wanted. www.mindfuleducation.org. Yes, in the back. So that's an important question. Anybody going back to the East Bay? Who? There you go.
This is one of those questions that I prefer not to answer, actually, because I have the deep conviction that you already know, or that the value of staying in not knowing, given that you know the situation in that particular school, what you're trying to accomplish, who the students are, what the, the whole atmosphere is of the, of the institution, and that that deep inquiry, that process of staying in the question without coming up with some answer from just some expert is absolutely critical to the whole uh, practice of mindfulness. And so whatever you wind up doing, if it comes out of your heart in that kind of a way and out of a discerning awareness that can sort of differentiate ideology and, and a kind of idealism from what might be really valuable, then, you know, you'll learn from all of it, including any sort of missteps or, or mistakes that you make at the beginning. That's all part of the process. There's no perfect way to do this. So I can say the example that you gave us of the school that, that worked when I was a while back and it was really inspiring. Oh, you mean the school in Utah? Yeah. yeah, as far as I know, they're still doing it. I haven't talked to Cherry in a while, but this, you know, it's like now close to, you know... 15 or 16 years. Right. Well, look, uh, I would say this about teaching mindfulness. And since you've been through Bob Stahl's program, this is an MBSR professional training program, the standards are very high for teaching mindfulness. Okay? The ethical standards are very high. The, the sort of requirement. Uh, that you come from your own experience is very high and that your commitment to practice is very deep. That being said, there's no one right way to do it. Okay, And it's not, as I said, a Buddhist agenda, either overt or covert. So there's a lot of creativity in how to do it, but still have it be true to the Dharma, if you understand what that word means, which I hope you do. And that is part of our challenge here in this country, and it's an ongoing koan, so to speak. And th that's in somewhere where the creativity lies. I also want to say that there are p people locally who are willing to engage in that type of inquiry with you and support you in that. And that is part of the mission of the Association for Mindfulness and Education. So if you mm. get in touch with us, this this area in particular has a wealth of experienced MBSR teachers. And there are teachers already committed to... Um, working with schools' interest in bringing it to their community um, in some way. Yeah, and I would underscore that, that it's not a question of like, well, you're on your own. What you've got here is an unbelievably rich sangha of common interest and a desire for a certain kind of common support and work. And so, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful situation. Yes. Project a little louder, please. Yeah. That wasn't the Dalai Lama, that was the Buddha. Okay. Do I think I would have been one of the blank faces or one of the smiling faces? Probably one of the blank faces. Yeah. Well, but here, I really appreciate your question because it's very easy to fall into some kind of idealization of meditation. Like, oh, if I was really mindful, then I wouldn't have... And then you fill in the blank. And then start hammering yourself, beating yourself up for not being mindful enough. 
that is not what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness is about awareness of how mindless you are 99% of the time. Okay? And that 1% makes a huge difference. And then maybe it becomes 1.5% sometimes if you're lucky. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's a lifetime's work. But if you, it's about moment-to-moment non-judgmental awareness. So now you're starting to judge how well you're doing. It's like then you have to let the awareness be bigger because the awareness isn't judging. The awareness knows that you're judging. That's very interesting. That's why it, it's important to learn to rest in awareness and begin to know the lay of that land rather than just into the, I'm not good enough, I didn't get the right answer, I don't really understand, who am I to teach meditation? My practice isn't deep enough. Me, 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 my, my, my. So I'll just say, since I mentioned the personal pronouns so much before we move on to the next question, the Buddha in one of his sutras said, after 45 years of teaching, all of my teachings can be encapsulated in one sentence. I like to say, just on the off chance that that might be true, maybe we should memorize that sentence, you know, even if we don't understand it. It might come in handy someday. And the sentence is, nothing is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. And the operative verb is clung, clinging, self-identifying. So when you notice that you're doing that to yourself, you write a little restraining order out on yourself and you cease and desist. And that's what William James was talking about. You bring the mind back over and over. To what? To awareness sing. It's already doing it, so you don't need to make it happen. Just come back over and over. Thank you. There's a certain positive bias to the stories that are coming out in education that I have on my mind because I used to teach and I don't any longer. Well, thank you for that observation because it's certainly true. Uh, sure. Uh, I was interested in a group process education and there's an awareness teaching going on about uh, how you behave in a group situation and how others perceive you. And one reason why I gave it up was I found that people were so frightened by learning about that or by being forced by the university uh, to learn about that and that the other students are aware of and concerned that other people were frightened then wanted to support them as their colleagues. And that's been on my mind for a long time. I just wanted to be comment. I don't understand what you said enough to be able to comment on it except that uh, if fear comes up in a group and, and one is comfortable with or even uncomfortable with resting in awareness of it, then remarkable things can happen and you can ask yourself profound questions and look, you know, as an experiment, is my awareness of the fear actually frightened? And that can be very liberating and a lot of the time what happens with fear is that it's fear of what other people will think of me and in a group situation and stuff like that. So how that is held, what the container is, and whether there's enough safety for people to actually be real with each other. You use the word forced. And as soon as you use the word forced, nothing that I have said tonight has any applicability. This is not about forcing. This is about loving and that igniting of passion. Uh, just a little bottom line to that story. When the university changed the regulations that it was no longer forcing them, the of the Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I guess 
more of a statement than a, than a question. But Statements are allowed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I work in a public school in San Francisco um, in, in a support staff role. Um, I mean, you can family outreach program for teachers to families in the K-5 public school. And it's a challenging environment. Yes. And the situation these kids are coming from uh, in the system itself that is so top-down and so driven by results so driven by testing. And um, so, you know, it's this larger system that I and many other people feel helpless to impact. Yeah. And uh, so, so for myself, part of the learning is that even if I'm not explicitly teaching my uh how, how, how important, how kind of invaluable for myself personally and for me to do any kind of effective work with whomever I work with, kids, teachers, parents, to bring some, some presence, some awareness, some compassion. Uh, I have a, a clinical supervisor who talks about myself and others in a similar role, kind of this burden warrior with compassion. And when I can remember that and just remember I I'm so touched that you're saying that. I hope everybody heard it because I'm not going to be able to repeat it. Uh, your eloquence and, and authenticity is just like coming through loud and clear. And also pain because it's a very painful work situation in which to, you know, and, and I think partly what, you're, what I hear is that mm, if you did nothing else but be real in that way, you would have the deepest influence on your students because they see so little of that. And what, if you remember back to your own education, what really strikes you the most probably isn't any of the subjects. It's a moment or two when someone was real about something that had to do with passion, love, insight, and... Uh, uh, the possibility of opening that's relevant to me, you know, as a student. Okay? If you can create an atmosphere where that happens like 10% of the time rather than 0.01% of the time, just by embodying what, who you are and what you don't know, that's an incredible gift. Everything else, the curriculum and what you can get away with and teaching kids to meditate, ultimately that's not what it's about. It's about being real. And I, I neglected to mention it, but there is a, there is a study that was done with, with school teachers in uh, San Francisco Bay Area through UCSF called Cultivating Emotional Balance, where they were attempting to bring mindfulness training into uh, the, the two teachers so that potentially they would be able to more effectively deal with what you're using practice to deal with, and also presumably because of the flow through to the, the children in the classes. So I think this is in its infancy, but you know, in medicine, if, if we had proposed like 30 years ago, we were going to bring meditation and yoga into medicine, we would have been tarred and feathered and driven out on a rail. Now, every place in the universe wants to bring meditation and mindfulness into medicine, and the NIH is funding multi-million dollar studies here, there, and everywhere else about meditation and mindfulness in medicine. It's like in less than one generation, it's... Education is more in need of that now than, mind, than medi medicine was 30 years ago, although medicine was and is in many ways still in sorry shape, 
but it's it's growing and I think that 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 in a sense anybody who's committed to this is really a pioneer and you do it for life in every sense of that term and that becomes the great adventure it's not about getting someplace else it's about living the integrity in the classroom today with all the shit you have to deal with and I bow to you for it so I guess it's probably is there one or two more that we should do yeah Cultivating Emotional Balance, uh, Margaret Kemeny on the faculty at UCSF here is the principal investigator of that study. Okay? The study's actually been done, but there will, you will be hearing more from Cultivating Emotional Balance. Margaret Kemeny, K-E-M-E-N-Y. So I guess, I guess it's reached the point that we should stop for the evening, folks, if you want to talk individually. But thank you very much for coming. It's been a delight.